Welcome to the Zero Waste Code podcast, brought to you by Green Code. We are a tech startup based down in Cornwall, and this is our mission to reduce food waste in the hospitality and food service sector. In today's episode, we hear from Professor Venus Sojwala from UNSW about her invention of polymer injection technology and what goes on inside her e-waste micro factories. Next, co-founder of Era Zero Waste, Lolo Askar, shares her passion for sustainability and how their green startup is tackling carbon emissions and plastic waste. Finally, we speak to Callan Richardson about the bay fish and chips and how he is replacing the greasy spoon image with high-end sustainability. First up, here's Professor Vina Sajwala joining us from Australia. Okay, so today on Zero Waste Code, we are joined by Professor Vina Sajwala all the way from Australia. Thank you for joining us today. Um, would you like to introduce yourself and your background and your achievements? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on your program. Um, I'm uh, from UNSW, University of New South Wales in Sydney, and um, director of the Smart Centre, that's Sustainable Materials Research and Technology. Um, and here we are absolutely delighted that um, for us, um, looking at fundamental science, technology, Uh, around sustainability of materials, which means we're looking at a whole range of important, multifaceted, challenging questions around how do you you recycle, reform materials and really make them uh, useful for our economy by actually putting them back into manufacturing different kinds of products that, again, we all need in our society. So, you know, really, I don't think anything in our society should ever be considered as a waste. And I think this is where, um, you know, all of us at the Smart Center um, at UNSW are always on the lookout for all kinds of cool and exciting things that you know, we we know we can divert them away from landfill and um, put them back into our productive economy. But um, to do that, um, you know, you actually have to have that fundamental discovery piece, the science, the engineering. Um, and that's really what we do. And ultimately working in partnership with so many incredible businesses and not-for-profit sectors and and partnerships with government um, right here in Australia is, is really such a privilege for us uh, at the Smart Centre. Uh, so we are actually really, really lucky that um, we have this privilege of working with uh, so many different types of people from all walks of life. Um, and it's an exciting, exciting uh, time to be working in in scientific research around materials, um, waste recycling, and looking at a complete shift in our mindset about how we actually think about waste. Um, The best thing would be that we don't, you know, really think about it as a waste, but rather think of it as a whole new opportunity to be explored. Amazing. Yeah. So um, speaking of all walks of life, um, what inspired you to pursue a career in you know, science and engineering, particularly with waste? Um, you know, uh, waste is, is, as I was saying, you know, such a fantastic opportunity. And I think to me, 
um, the, the really um, ideal way to look at, um, you know, harnessing waste resources and really creating value for our society across, across you know, global, um, I guess, um, you know, uh, countries. We, what we want to do is we want to be able to develop in many instances science that allows us to deliver benefits to uh, societies across the world. So, you know, for example, if we were only reliant on traditional ways of harnessing waste and, and recycling, we really would be quite limited in the way we can in fact, um, you know, recycle our waste resources because in many parts of the world, we simply do not have um, the financial resources or indeed large capacity to harness huge amounts of waste. So really what we are doing here at UNSW is, you know, looking at how new science of recycling and one of the things we're excited about is uh, something that we're developing here called micro recycling is, is going to lay the foundation. And I think this is what excites me about um, science, because it has a huge impact on not only knowledge and knowledge creation, uh, but it also enables us to really put that knowledge into practice and deliver real world impact and benefits for our planet and for our people. Amazing. Yeah. So speaking of uh, micro recycling, what happens at your e-waste micro factories? Well, our Ebus microfactory is, is really very exciting when you come in and have a look at all kinds of things we do, because as you can imagine with electronic waste, you know, we've got, as we expect, of course, metals, but we also have other materials like plastics. So we might have, for example, our printers um, that are made out of plastic, as we all know. Um, and so when we look at e-waste, we know that it's a complex mixture of so many different kinds of materials and metals. Um, so how do you actually imagine that allows us to harness, not in a traditional sense, a single input and a single output, but rather multiple inputs, which is what e-waste is all about, therefore harnessing all those multi-materials and converting them into all kinds of useful products. And to do that, of course, as you can imagine, you can't just imagine a single large smelter um, and, and just all we are doing is putting everything into one smelter and hoping for the best. We, we're really not going to solve this complex multifaceted problem. Uh, if we have to really harness all kinds of materials, our plastics, our ceramics, our metals, we actually need multiple pathways. And that's really what our micro factories are. We've got modules, different kinds of modules uh, where we can harness our, our metallics, our plastics. So one of the things we are doing with our plastics, for instance, in our e-waste uh, micro factories, we are actually converting uh, those waste plastics into, guess what, really nice thin uh, filaments. And these plastic filaments are fit for purpose when it comes to 3D printing. So there we go in our small micro factory in our basement at UNSW. We've got our input feedstock coming from waste plastics that then gets harnessed into plastic filaments that then can be utilized for 3D printing, uh, not just by ourselves, but uh, so many different people who want to approach us to access plastic filaments that are made out of recycled plastics. So this is just one example of what is possible in the future. So when we think about the future and the fact that we could be reforming our waste plastics and other materials into really useful and functional products, uh, that's really for me, 
the long-term vision of, of why microfactories? Why do we want to decentralize our manufacturing and do it on a small and affordable scale? Because I think that allows us to democratize recycling and manufacturing and enable communities all across the world to really um, show that it is possible to be doing recycling and manufacturing um, on, a, on a small enough affordable scale and yet producing high quality products. Amazing. Yeah. So speaking of, you know, the future, how much more innovation is needed before we design out waste in our society completely? Or is it even possible to do so? Oh, look, absolutely possible to do so, because I think if we if we can just see waste, um, not just something that has to be thrown away into landfill, um, we can actually imagine a future where we are harnessing these materials into useful products. So waste is simply a material um, that's not yet been harnessed. It's kind of waiting patiently. Um, and it's a material that's... Um, you know, crying out for attention. So we might think about it as a, as a, bit, as a bit of a rebel for which, um, you know, we haven't yet found uh, ultimately a purpose, but I'm pretty sure that as we go down this path of materials revolution, we'll be able to find so many different ways in which our waste can be um, harnessed into so many different kinds of products. And what we do need for that to happen is new ways of manufacturing a complete shift in our mindset. And I think once we can show that science, engineering, technology, business, and all of these intersect together, and of course, you know, government, government's role in creating policies that are really there for enabling all of us on this planet to have have a better future. And I think when we when we all recognize and work together, we will definitely get to that point where we're not going to be seeing our waste as something that we just throw away into landfill, but we're going to be seeing this as basically, you know, a useful feedstock that is uh, just waiting to be harnessed into, into its next life. Fantastic. Well, that is great to hear. <laughs> so <laughs> you are most well known for inventing polymer injection technology. Can you tell us what on earth that is and why it is so revolutionary for sustainability? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I love thinking about how in the early days when, uh, um, you know, I was thinking about this invention and thinking about um, the kinds of materials that uh, we could be using as alternatives to coal and coke in the process of uh, making steel. And uh, certainly electric arc furnace steel making is um, very popular in many parts of the world uh, and including, of course, being used in Australia where scrap steel and waste steel is, is pretty normal to feed into a steel making furnace. But yet, of course, um, it was still reliant on uh, resources like coal and coke. Um, so for me, it was actually uh, something that I thought that here's, here's an opportunity for us to, um, you know, imagine a technology like EF steel making uh, that could completely be revolutionary in that it's already using scrap steel, but imagine if it could use so many other kinds of waste resources um, because that would then allow us to completely eliminate coal and coke. 
And so when um, some of the materials that I had in mind that were good sources of carbon, which is, of course, the reason why coal and coke is used in, in these steelmaking processes, um, you only have to look at something that we all sat in every day in our lives, our cars, for example, and tires, which, of course, are an essential part of, um, you know, driving, um, whether you're in a car or, or indeed in a bus. Um, we actually... Uh, know very well that when tires reach the end of their usable life as tires, in many cases, um, you know, we often find that they are stockpiled, thrown away into landfill. And of course, so many times um, these stockpiles or waste tires uh, can be quite dangerous because they can catch fire. Um, but for me, it was such an obvious thing to look at because it was a rich source of carbon that could be useful for steel making. And, um, and yeah, the, the technology was born when actually the lab experiments a few years down the road proved that not only could we use it at those um, steel making conditions, but it actually performed better than traditional coal and coke. So it was almost one of the, those ironies in life where you, know, you, you use a resource uh, like waste tires, and um, you kind of just hope that it does its job and it performs as it's meant to perform in a steel-making furnace, as you know, coal and coke has to do. Um, but lo and behold, when it actually started showing in those incredibly fantastic, visually amazing reactions where steel is actually being produced um, in these furnaces, uh, those reactions were transforming uh, these waste tires into useful feedstock. And the, and the reactions proved um, through all the scientific work that we did that um, uh, these materials actually performed um, a lot better than some of the more traditional coal and coke that um, industries had been using. So I think for me that uh, that discovery, when I think about the early days, uh, still gives me a lot of goosebumps. <laughs> Oh, no, that's really lovely. So just out of interest, um, going back to your micro factories, um, the e-waste micro factories, what process is it, you know, that you use to transform all of this e-waste into usable materials? What, what actually happens to all of that waste? So in, in an e-waste microfactory, we've got basically different modules. And it's very important that, you know, we have to think in a modular level because what you might um, have to do with circuit boards, which are rich in metals, would be very different to what you might do with, um, for example, plastics. Um, and so it's, it's imagine if you were thinking about a modular setup where you've got your um, e-waste that comes in and, and it could be uh, just your simple phone. Um, and imagine if you could, in fact, pull apart. So, for example, uh, we've, got, we've got opportunities to then uh, really uh, look at plastics as a different, different uh, feedstock for a module and then our circuit boards as a different feedstock. So we then have got... Um, a module where the plastics is actually being fed into one of our modules for creating these extended long thin filaments. Um, and that's because these plastics, of course, are still very high quality and they can be converted into high quality filaments, uh, which are fit for 3D printing. But on the other hand, 
when it comes to met metals, what you want to do is you want to be able to put it into a separate module where we have micro furnaces that allow us to create metallic alloys. So your uh, circuit board, for example, um, could be rich in uh, copper and tin. But what you want to do is not necessarily separate every little piece of metal out, but you might actually see this as a nice integrated resource of different kinds of metals. So by controlling the time, temperature, and these operating parameters, you can actually control the nature um, of the kinds of metallic alloys that you're making. So again, from the context of a module that is now looking at you know, creating these alloys, uh, what, what we do is we've got cameras that hook up to our furnaces and we can actually follow and track these transformations of our circuit boards. So as you can imagine, if you are creating alloys at, uh, you know, relatively lower temperature, you could have a different, um, you know, uh, metallic output versus something that might be hotter and closer to a thousand degrees where you might be using um, an alloy that you want to be able to create copper uh, with tin, for instance. So in all of these cases, you can picture these different kinds of modules that allow us to then repurpose all the different parts and components. So you're not just putting everything into one module, but rather once you've actually separated out the various components, you can then redirect these different components so that you can have very targeted output that you can then create. And of course, uh, there, are, there is a whole lot of other um, outputs that are in the making. We're um, looking at uh, you know, materials, important materials like rare earths, for instance. Um, that's again, an important material for our society as we start to think about uh, you know, the whole new digital economy. Um, there are important um, metals and rare earths that uh, are available to us as feedstock in, in our electronic waste. So we've got different modules that can operate at different conditions. And that's really what you would see in, in our e-waste micro factory. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited that uh, we've already got people, for instance, who are uh, using uh, products uh, and prototyping and testing products that have been made out of 100% recycled plastics where the plastic came from uh, all these kinds of waste resources. But the important step in the middle was converting that into a plastic filaments that was uh, fit for 3D printing. So yes, 3D printing is, is a very standard technology, but the feedstock that goes into it is, is a very important feedstock, which is our plastic filament. And as we've shown, we can make that um, out of 100% uh, uh, waste plastics. Wow, that's absolutely incredible. So finally, if our listeners want to find out more about what you're doing and you and your research, uh, where can they find out more? Uh, yeah, there's, there's uh, a lot of uh, exciting uh, content, uh, videos and other things that people want to see. Some of these, uh, you know, um, visuals that I've been describing, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's there on our website, um, www.smart.unsw.edu.au. So uh, 
lots of pretty cool and exciting videos. And um, I have to also, um, you know, mention that uh, there's uh, a more detailed footage that the ABC here uh, covered uh, recently as part of uh, uh, the Australian story where a lot of our work was also featured um, as part of the story that ABC did. So if someone's interested in looking at um, things in more detail, they can actually go and see um, footage on these industrial partner sites um, from uh, steel making facilities to our green ceramics um, being produced right here in Australia. And um, I think um, it's going to be quite an exciting future uh, for our planet and for our people. Amazing. Yeah, well, I encourage everyone to check that out and to have a look at it because it is really, really interesting. So, yeah, thank you so much, Professor Vina, for joining us on the podcast and sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, here's Lolo Askar from Era Zero Waste, based in Germany. Okay, so welcome to Zero Waste Code. Would you like to introduce yourself and your green startup business? Oh, sure. I am Eloisa, but everybody calls me Lolo. Um, I'm from Brazil, but I currently live in Berlin. And I'm the co-founder of Era Zero Waste. That is a startup from Berlin. So here we are. Super happy to be with you, Amy. Thank you for the invitation and for having us. Fantastic. Yeah. So would you like to tell us a bit about what Zero Zero Waste do? Sure. Um, So basically, Era Zero Waste is a sustainable grocery delivery service. As I mentioned, we're based in Berlin. So far, we have plans, but so far we're still in Berlin. And what we do is we partner with a variety of zero waste shops, farm boxes, specialty retailers, and bio supermarkets to provide an e-commerce marketplace for sustainable products. So customers can order these products, you know, from these shops online on our platform. And it's kind of like shopping you know, like you go to Deliveroo, Delivery Hero, and you choose your food, and then you get it at your place. The experience is kind of the same, but you're doing it with groceries, and you're doing it in a manner that is carbon neutral, because everything is delivered by bike, picked up by bike, delivered by bike, everything's done by bike. And we have no um, extra shipping or, you know, packaging for the, for the shipping itself. Everything is reusable. And there, there is the plan to, you know, reduce the waste. Yeah, amazing. So how much of an impact do supermarkets have on unnecessary plastic waste? In the UK, it is a big problem and that I think is being tackled, but not quite as well as you're doing. <laughs> the thing about the supermarket, Amy, is that uh, it's not even the super. If you stop to think about it, it's not even only the supermarket. It's the throwaway mentality that we have. And we've been having since, I don't know, maybe the 50s or something. I mean, it grew, right? But the things with supermarket, and as you mentioned, it has been like most countries are taking kind of care of it. And Germany is definitely one of them. But the supermarket, like the grocery store, is where we constantly interact with disposable items. And 
we like when we go to the grocery store, we don't usually think on how anything that we want to purchase is packaged. We we're just focused on what we're buying, right? And then when you actually stop and you think about it, almost everything that you would purchase there comes in a pack in a packaging that will eventually be thrown away. And that's the point here, because most of people don't know this neither, but more than like on average, more than 50% of any consumer goods, um, the cost of it, more than 50% is the packaging. How to design this packaging, how to make this packaging sometimes. And it's a lot of cost and it will eventually be thrown away. It will be waste. So it's double waste because it's a waste of money, of investment, right? On something that's going to be even um, like polluting and really having a negative impact in the environment in the end. So it's, it's for us, it's just crazy how it's still like there are still so many people that don't realize how the grocery store is just a landfill waiting to happen, you know, I'm <laughs> saying it like that. I mean, in Germany, um, 228, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, 228 kilos of packaging per person are thrown away every year. It's a lot, especially because we're considering like 84 million people here. So it's a lot of waste, right? Yeah, definitely. Wow. So how do you sort of, obviously everything is, you know, sustainable and eco, all the places you work with. So how is packaging sort of cut out or how is reusable packaging used and returned with um, your company? What we do is like that. We have a curatorship. So we talk to, as you mentioned, like-minded brands, like-minded shops that even before offering a product, they're looking for products and they're doing products and they're selling products that already have uh, a sustainable appeal, let's say, a sustainable concern in every way, right? Because... For us, for example, being local, being, um, being a local company, being a local shop is very important because part of the sustainability aspect of ERA is supporting the local community. And so it's, there, there are all this, how can I say that? Like all this aspect of a product that we look for and then we decide, okay, this is a good product to be offered at our platform. But what we do with some of them is, of course, there are some that come already in packaging and then we're not gonna dispose the packaging just not to uh, send this packaging to the consumer, to the final consumer, but some products can be bought in bulk. And then we have a glass container system of reusing. So we bring it to the customer field, of course, he can purchase as much as he wants. And then as soon as, soon as the container is empty, he's gonna give this same container back to us, either on the next delivery 
or he can just drop it off at any of the affiliated shops of the platform. And then we're going to clean this and get it prepared for someone else to use to, you know, fulfill purchase and get it delivered by bike in their home. And we do it not only with glass containers, but also with the shipping boxes. So it's really, you know, we're really creating a system here to provide to all these shops. And not only that, Amy, but we also help some shops get digitalized. Because of the pandemic, many people didn't have, didn't have an online presence, and we're offering this to many small, you know, maybe, maybe family um, managed shops that weren't quite there yet. And we're offering this possibility and to help, you know, the, the mission of ERA is really to make it easy for the consumer to find this product, this product and to get it at their doorstep, which is amazing, right? Because everybody wants stuff to have to, to be delivered nowadays. We we kind of we were kind of forced to shop online and now we actually like it, don't you? <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's I'm sure like many, my delivery consumption has gone right up. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, like you say, your deliveries are done by bike, like um, Deliveroo. How do you sort of cope with, obviously with De- Deliveroo and things like that, you're only really ordering one meal or something. How do you sort of adapt that to then do whole grocery shops? Okay, we use bigger boxes, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. But what we do is we have a pickup daily from each shop. So we go to every shop that the consumer bought something from. So we go to all of the shops at least once a day. And then we organize what which consumer bought. And then we ship it to them on the other day. Which in the beginning, to be honest, we were a bit like are people going to like this, you know, because they're not going to get it, their delivery in 10 minutes, they're not going to get it in two hours. But then we thought like, well, this is not what we're offering. We are offering a way to do the same thing you're doing, like shopping online, having the convenience of having your products delivered by at your doorstep to you. But we're doing it in a way that doesn't make more waste, doesn't create more waste, that still helps people that want to live a zero waste life, but also people that never thought about it before. And they never saw that this was a way to, you know, to make a positive impact. And we offer them that. So of course, there's a system behind it all. It it may sound very, you know, easy to do, but it's not. We are... Um, doing all we can to understand better the consumer and also understand better the shops which we work with. And to be honest, the, the, the like perception of everyone involved in this community is so good. We're super happy to see that going from one meal or two meals to a big basket of groceries bought in a specialty shop, like maybe a, a beer wine somewhere, and then some bulk products from another shop and then some, you know, um, personal care products from another shop and getting them all together with no extra 
you know, extra boxes, extra, extra plastic, extra shipping packaging at all. And from a guy that came with a bike and it's smiling at your doorstep is really gaining the hearts of people here. We're super happy about that because we envisioned it, but seeing it happen, it really takes us to another level of, you know, self-purpose and satisfaction. So, yeah, how have you um, achieved carbon neutrality as well? So we do everything by bike, Amy. All, everything, pickups from the shops, delivery, everything. So we are also balancing the carbon emissions with carbon removal. We do this, as I mentioned, by doing everything by bike and also completely eliminating emissions with like that are associated with transportation because that's what mostly like we understand that being carbon neutral is bigger than only re- not not using a car or a van or anything like that for the delivery but also looking for products that are already concerned with being carbon neutral that maybe not in the t- entire supply chain from production to store, but we are sure that from store to customer, it is carbon free. So that's how we reached it. And we enhance it with the, with doing this curatorship, you know, with uh, brands and shops that are like-minded and are already doing some kind of either removal of carbon or, balancing what they you know what they have negative with the positive like planting trees or something but then it goes like way bigger uh subject here fantastic yes so can you talk us through the five r's in the uk we sort of use the three r's so can you tell us why refuse and rot are also important Oh, sure. I'll be happy to. I didn't know that in the UK, you you guys are only thinking about the three. Oh, that's nice. I'm going to be happy to to explain. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so of course, the three main ones, reduce, reuse and recycle, you guys already know. But the refuse one, it's major because it takes us... um, When we talk about reduce, you're thinking about like... Having all this excess, of course, because there's so much excess on what we purchase. And I mean, on everything, Amy, you know, I'm not only talking about food. I personally came from the fashion industry. I I was working for the fashion industry for 17 years, and that's an industry of excess. But food also is, and people don't, don't notice that much, but it is. I mean, when we go to the supermarket, there are so many offers like pay two, get three. And then you don't realize that the thing ends up in your, you know, in your pantry for longer than than necessary. And that you're wasting space in your pantry for something else that you might need or want or anything like that. So the refuse part really comes in in understanding your needs better. Um, It's not only about saying no, of course it is, refusing saying no is big. For example, if you go to a a store and you say no to plastic bags at the grocery shop, right? 
and you say, no, I don't need a, I don't need a bag. I have my own bag here, which we do a lot here in Germany. We take our own like fabric bags and then we put everything we buy in the supermarket inside and then we go out. So we are already saying no, but that's also saying no to something that you think you need, but you not really need. For example, as I said, the, you know, buy, pay two and get three. Do you need a third one? Um, if you like look at fashion, for example, do you need another pair of jeans really? Or is it just like, oh, because they're newer or they're, they're this new brand and I want to feel, um, I want to feel like renovated by wearing something new. I want I want to feel safe because my pantry is packed with stuff. We really have to understand that shopping for anything, it's not only about um, physical needs, but also psychological needs. And refusing something really makes you understand better who you are. And knowing better who you are leads you to a more, like leads you to being a more conscious consumer, a more aware, of yourself and of, um, of the product, you know? And this is big. So refusing mainly comes from understanding your needs, understanding yourself and understanding that the planet needs our help in a way, right? So this rot is very, very big in Germany. It's also in the city and people do it at home, but this rotting, as I mentioned with the refuse, also makes you think that there, there, you also have to think about the afterwards, you know? It can't be just like things don't disappear. Nothing disappears, right? There's no way you can throw something away and it completely disappears. So how does the rest of your things that can't be rotten, how, what can you do with these, these other things? So the rot mentality is the mentality that brings you to the essence of repurposing, that even something that's not good for you to eat anymore can be good for your garden, can be better for the planet. So it's actually like this five R's at ERA, we use them as a way to change and to um, enforce, like I say, reinforce the mentality of thinking in a circular mode. Does it make sense, Amy? Yes, definitely. That circular sort of ideology is something that we talk about quite a lot on here. So our listeners are very sort of used to it. So where can those listeners, um, specifically our German listeners, get involved and take their first step to reducing their plastic waste? Well, if they're Germans, they can just go to our website. No, I mean, I'm kidding. Everyone can go to our website. <laughs> Maybe you cannot order yet if you're not in Berlin, but we have a lot of um, nice, you know, content and we share a lot about our team and what's going on with ERA. But there are like many other things that are great are a great way to start for reducing plastic waste and one of them Amy to be honest is not thinking about plastic as the bad guy 
I know it sounds a little bit out of the curve when I say this because everybody's thinking, oh, plastic is is the villain, you know, is the villain in the world, is the vin- is the villain for our for our planet. But the villains are are actually us who don't understand that things that are single use in plastic are bad. So if you have something in plastic and you can reuse it, good for you. Keep your plastic. You don't have to change it for metal. You don't have to change it for glass. Keep your plastic and reuse it. But not choosing single-use packaged goods or not, you know, not reinforcing habits like, oh my God, my husband still does it sometimes and I want to kill him. He uses, you know, this plastic film for wrapping the food. And I'm like, baby, I already bought so many bee wax, you know, with the fabric, with the bee wax thing that it works exactly the same way. You can keep your food in the fridge, just put it over the food and it's not going to be rotten. It's going to be there. And this like small changes are, are the ones that make the most difference in our point of view, because We really understand here at ERA, and ERA was like born with the mission of showing and sharing with everyone that you don't have to change your entire life to to help the planet. You don't have to be a consumer that um, changes all the habits, that changes all of yourself. You don't have to be vegan to be sustainable. You know what I mean, Amy? There are some small changes that help so much. Like people already, at least that's what I feel, especially being in Germany. But even back in Brazil, I I felt it too. Like straws, no one takes straws anymore. Um, Reusable bottle for for water, everybody has one. And you you don't have to have three. You, You need one. You only drink one bottle at a time. So that's the, you know, the idea behind all these five R's and understanding that plastic is not really bad if it's reusable and that not many changes are needed for someone to have a positive impact and to, um, let's say, create less waste because waste is only waste when it's wasted, right? If, it's, if you do something with it, it's not actually waste. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your passion and telling us all about Era Zero Waste on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure, Amy. It was really nice to be here. I must say I'm a bit sorry because sometimes it takes me a little while longer to, you know, to reach the point because my English vocabulary is not the native one, right? Being brought up in Brazil, living in Germany now. But thank God I studied a lot of English because I really like the language and I really like being able to talk to people like you guys that share the same mission that we do here and and we can speak and we can understand each other. So I'm super happy to be here. Thank you so much. Last but not least, here's Scottish sustainable business owner, Callum Richardson. Great. So welcome to Zero Waste Code. Would you like to introduce yourself and your business? 
Yeah, I'm uh, Callum Richardson. I'm chef director of the Bay Fish and Chips in Stonehaven. Fantastic. Yeah. And would you like to give us a bit of background about yourself and your achievements in hospitality? Yeah. So for me, school life is difficult. Um, dyslexic and being dyslexic back in the day I was at school it was pretty difficult. It wasn't really known. So anything with my hands, I was good. I wanted to join the Navy, went to the Navy to be a chef and they decided to go in as an engineer. So that's what, how I started my career. And I, sp- I spent half my time in the galley. Um, and then I decided to come out and get a civvy life. And I, I managed a fish and chip shop, which got me going. But the real desire was to have my own business and implement the things that I wanted to do. So I bought a, a bankrupt business. And I knew that winning awards was a great way of being noticed and putting yourself out there. So I went out and I won UK Young Fish Fryer of the Year. And I have to be honest, the Navy probably created that because it was the way you worked on your own or worked as a team and the desire to go and do things. Um, So it gave me the foundations. But I had a business partner there and he was the most vocal, silent business partner in history um so i couldn't really stamp full what i wanted to do um but when looking back it was a good thing because it made me made me look at things a little bit different and trust people different and it gave me more again i always think when your back's against the wall you push and drive harder so like the covid when you've got to got to get out of your comfort zone. I sometimes think it's the best thing for people. Um, so I had that business for six years and then I built the shop I'm in now, which would have been 2006. So I've been in there 15 years now. Um, and again, I knew that awards would be the way ahead. So I went out and I wanted to win Fish and Chip Shop of the Year. And so that was my main goal. And the funny thing was when I had the trophy, the morning after I won, I looked at the trophy and thought, oh, that's one day gone already. I'm really going to have to make this. I've got to make this happen. But when I went to hand it back a year later, I was ready to hand it back. But I'd already said to myself that it was only the start, really. Putting this back wasn't the end of what I was trying to achieve. This was just the start. The doors were cracked open. I had to go and kick the rest of them open and push for where I wanted to be. And sustainability is been a huge fundamental part for me in that you know I I think it's something that everyone's got to be interested in or have a little bit of knowledge about kids come out of school with a huge knowledge of it now the hardest people to turn around is probably the older generation but not the really old ones who were brought up that way anyway in a different kind of format and so you've got to evolve and I entered so many awards to do with sustainability and I, I actually was shocked at how far I was getting in them against companies like Nestle's and, you know, I was, I was, up, I was in a final of the European uh, Vision and Business Awards and I, I beat London Transport, Nestle, UK, all these companies to get to the final and it was just like a little fish and chip shops managed to get that far. 
and it opens your eyes. It makes you realise, hey, if I can do this, everyone can do this. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a wonderful story. So how how did you manage to make this fish and chip shop so sustainable? How how are your fish and chips sourced and cooked sustainably? So I believe that you've got to look at every ingredient that comes into every ingredient that goes out. And that that can be through power that comes into the business and um, which fundamentally leaves a carbon footprint. So I, I got that deep into it. But not it's progressively got deeper into it, you know, because when I first opened the bay, we're right on the waterfront, and I I was really into whatever goes down the drain is going into the sea, which is where I'm getting my fish from. So that was kind of a big crucial thing for me. So we used back then, we used Ecover cleaning materials, um, because it was probably the best on the market at the time that I could get my hands on. Um, but then you start looking a little bit more. And so I looked at vegware boxes. Um, but this would have been back in about 2008, 10, maybe 2008, something around about then. But I remember looking at these boxes and they were expensive. But I thought to myself, it's. I think it's too ahead of its time. No one's going to understand this. You know, you, you try to explain to someone that's a compostable packaging, they're going to be and. You know, they're not really... So I, I sidelined that and I went back to that idea about three years later. So it was still ahead of time, but people were starting to understand it a little bit more. Um, so I think progressively it's just become more in-depth. Becoming a member um, of the Sustainable Restaurant Association, you know, one of the things they said to me, uh, you need to monitor your food waste. And I'm thinking, I don't really have much food waste. Well, that... Once I started really looking into it, I had more food waste than I realised. And it opened my eyes deeply into silly things like when we cut the lemons, are we? why are we trimming that off of them? You know, I'm putting that to food waste. That costs me to get uplifted. Okay, it gets turned into compost, but we've got to look at different methods and how can we use things. So one of the best things, though, is probably you say to your staff, anyone that comes up with an idea, you know, I'll... I'll support it. We'll try it. If it works, then you'll get something. So tickets to a concert or to a football match or out for a meal. And we used to have in the shop the big deep, traditional deep sinks that you have in kitchens um, with the long plug that comes up. And one of the staff said to me, why do we fill these with water all the time? Because you're, once the dishes are done, you're just letting that water down the drain. And I thought, oh, right enough. So we, he said, let's get an elastic band and put it on the on the drain. So we, we've got a depth that we're not going to fill past. And all of a sudden you're thinking, this is saving a fortune. Silly little things that can make a huge difference. And that's kind of what, what we do, what we believe in. Kids, The kids have got some great ideas. So you've got to be open to any of these things that they've got that can help you. Um open door approach has got to be there for staff so that they can come forward with their ideas and it might not be their idea is the right idea but it might stem into how how we get there and how we look at things but we on product we look at everything so like the coffee beans triple certified um, organic 
fair trade. So you're looking back, you know that the people that are creating these or harvesting these are all treating their staff well, which fundamentally has to be in the chain. You've got to be looking after them. It's not about just having a great product. The whole thing's got to be a package. No point having the best uh, fish if you don't pay your staff well. You know, you've got to make it right from start to finish. And that's what we look at. We look at everything that comes in to everything that goes out. So we've had our carbon footprint monitored. And the last time it was done was probably four or five years ago by St Andrews University. And they came in and I think an average meal generates over a thousand grams of CO2 per meal. And we were producing, I think it's 172 grams of CO2 because of all the things that we do in the way that we do it, it reduces the CO2. So our carbon footprint is really low. It'll be lower now than then because we've made changes since that point as well. But you've got to, some things can be very expensive actually, you know, so like food waste, the food, food waste bins, the uplift of them is expensive rather than throwing them in general waste. But you, in Scotland, you have got, by law, you've got to separate your, your waste. But you've, you've got to look at reducing the food waste to reduce the bill. But some, some bills in sustainability and environmental practice, you can't really reduce. But there's huge savings to be made in other areas. So what you lose in one area, you gain in another and that's kind of the way you've got to balance it out. Absolutely. Yeah. So why do you feel that it is important to raise the profile of the fish and chip industry in terms of sustainability? Does sort of the industry have a particularly bad reputation? I th- one of the things I set my mind to was to get rid of the greasy spoon image. Mm. Um, and when I won Fish and Chip Shop of the Year, I decided that I was going to take that year to promote it in a positive manner. And not I want to be not selling processed products. I want to be seen to be selling high-end produce and show it works. And it's not right for everyone. I know that, you know, you've got to be locations in my massive point of it. But I wanted to get rid of the greasy spoon image. I wanted what I found was I was part of the SRA, you know, Raymond Blanc had said to me. I was in the front page of the Telegraph. It was the Bay Fish and Chips up against Le Manoir. And I meant, I said to Raymond, I said, I'm really sorry if I've embarrassed you um, putting you up against fish and chips. And he says, no, total opposite. And I ended up having to cook for him for the Sustainable Restaurant Association Awards in London at Borough Market. I had to go down there and cook fish and chips for him. And the funny thing is, all these people in all these restaurants, they all want to do fish and chips. More so now as well. You see a lot of top chefs getting into the, my industry. But they all love it. They know how good it is, how good a product it is. And I think you should be proud of what you do, but do it right. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. But I, I think my industry is in a quite a good place at the minute. A lot of the kind of don't care people, are kind of dying out the younger generations coming in and it is getting better for sure you know there's a lot of real good operators out there now and they're putting out fantastic product with a great image as well which is important yeah definitely so how important is the marine stewardship council to your operation in a lot of the restaurants we interview a lot of them are involved with the marine stewardship 
council would you be able to tell us a little bit more about how you use them yeah so for me it was really important the msc the scottish fleet were getting assessed and i'm trying to think how long ago that'll be now that's probably 10 years ago <clears throat> they were getting assessed and i said to my supplier you're you're going to have to get certified because that is something that's important to me i want to be able to prove to my customers where the fish is from it's all very well me saying it but if i've got some backup and the cooper's seafood that i've used for um 15 years there are three generations the, the oldest the granddad he wouldn't have been interested the dad would was humming and hawing but young jamie who'd just come into the business had an economics degree. So he was a breath of fresh air for them. He knew that if I if they didn't get it, they were going to lose me, but he looked past that. And if I speak to him now, he wouldn't have got contracts with a lot of the foreign countries that they send, like France, they send fish to, if they didn't have accreditation. So it's, it's worked out better for them anyway. But for me, it was it was a big part. It was a big part of a platform for me. I know there's been a lot of negativity lately, but I still believe that if we didn't have it, we would be in a worse state than we are with having it. If you've got, and I've always said as well, if you've got two shops identical next door to each other, and say they were both mine, if one was certified and one wasn't certified, the people that don't care are going to go to both shops but the people that care about sustainability are only going to go to one of the shops. So you kind of eliminate yourself a little bit if you don't, if you don't get with it. So I think it's, it's quite crucial. I you know, I want to, people to believe in what I say. If I say I'm doing something, it's a lot of trust, you know, gone to the day of someone coming into your shop and asking what's in something or where'd you get something from and you won't tell them. I think it's the opposite now. I think if they don't tell you, you, you should probably not be buying it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, something we've come across um, with sustainable restaurants, um, which you mentioned uh, passingly, is the they tend to think a lot more about their staff. And would you class offering the living wage as a sustainable approach to hospitality? Yeah, I, I, living wage. So I got on board. I, I actually looked at becoming living wage about probably three, four years ago. But again, I found it really confusing when I went online because there was a living wage, a real living wage, and I got confused. I thought, oh, I can't, I'm not getting into this. This is like, it's like a mind blow. So I left it and then I, I went back to it a year and a half, two years ago. And we were doing everything anyway. So when you're doing something anyway, and I thought, let's just get get accreditation for it. It gives the team a, a wee bit of a boost. It makes them realise that they are being treated well. And when I when I was going back to the Navy, I was 16 and I was away in the Gulf War. And I was only, I was on a, a really low wage because I was a junior, I wasn't an adult. Um, but I was doing an adult's job. So halfway through that trip, my boss said to me, we've put you forward to get your wages made up to the same as, as if you were 18 because you're doing the same job. And I thought, oh, that's needed, you know, because it's quite hard when you're living with people that are on three times more money than you and you're expected to still live with them. So it, it's quite difficult. So it did make me think, you know, 
the people that are over 21 are fine anyway, but it's the age gap, 18 to 21. They, they're wanting to look at houses or even if they're not, they still want to build have a life. They want to buy a car. They want to do the things. And they're working as hard as anyone. So they should be, they should be given the reward for that. So for me, it was a no-brainer. You've got to, you've got to look after them with reward and also with respect and mental health's a massive issue as well. So by paying people properly and respecting them, that's one burden away from that equation, which you know is is got to be addressed just now. Yeah, absolutely lovely. So, yeah, finally, um, what sort of advice would you give to um, restaurateurs um, who are thinking about sort of going in the sustainable route? I think everyone has due diligence to be looking to be sustainable and environmental friendly, even if it's the basics. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm watching online just now the debacle of people arguing in England about um, 10 pence bag charge. Now, that's been something that's been in Scotland for years, and no one bats an eyelid. You know, it's the bag sales have gone right down, um, so that's a plus. Um, but I think you've got to start with basics, and once you sit back, don't try and do everything at once, because if you do that, you'll probably put yourself off. Baby steps and everything. Get everyone involved and you probably find that your team have got better ideas than you have by a mile. Um, but baby steps, start with something simple. Look at your cleaning materials. So like I use Delphis Eco, um, fantastic product. And I also use annual fibres, which is chemical free. Basic things that you can put into your business instantly and the saving of money. But not only that, it's a better for the environment. And then you start looking looking at the product that you're using, like your food, where the meat's coming from. You know, is it is it British? Is it Scottish? Um, where exactly is it from? Do you know anything about the company? Um, how how do they how do they get the product to you? So like we do a lot of um, sharing. So I'll get the milk delivered with the, with the potatoes because it's someone that lives right near the other the supplier, so the job share. And it saves up two vehicles coming to me twice a week, three times a week, you know. So oh, the suppliers have probably got a lot of good ideas for you as well. So you just have to open your door, open your ears, open your eyes and take baby steps. But you'll never be totally there. Because if I look back to what I was doing a year ago, five years ago, it, I've evolved so much and I've changed so many things over the years. So you've got to keep moving forward. You, you don't stand still. If you stand still, it'll go past you before you know it. Wonderful. Yeah, so finally, uh, where can our listeners find out more about you and the Bay Fish and Chips? So we've got Fish and Chips website, um, thebayfishandchips.com. Um, we're on all social platforms, um, at the Bay Fish, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we're pretty active on it, so it's quite good. And that's a great way as well, actually, of getting ideas and and uh, contacting people and moving forward. Lovely. Yeah, well, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No problems. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Zero Waistcoat podcast, brought to you by Greencode. If you'd like to find out more about us, then head to greencode.net, where you'll find all of our social medias and can sign up to our newsletter. See you in the next episode.